0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Carl Eric Fisher on The Urge. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the current events and politics category for episode number 196 with Michael Schellenberger on San Francisco. Hey, this is Michael Schellenberger. I'm author of San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, and I'm delighted to be on Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Carl Eric Fisher is an addiction physician, bioethicist, and author of the new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Carl, thank you so much for the time today. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me
0: my pleasure. So what was your goal with The Urge? So
1: The Urge was the book that I wanted for myself uh, and I couldn't find when I was at a time early in my own recovery from alcoholism and other drugs. And uh, I wanted something beyond medicine and science. So I'm a psychiatrist and I've done neuroscience research. So I have immense respect for those fields and they, they taught me a lot. And there are a lot of valuable contributions there. And at the same time, I had this feeling like there was more out there, like there was more the, the history and the philosophy and arts and literature and culture could offer. So uh, I started looking around and I, I couldn't find a book that looked at addiction across different times and different cultures uh, and tried to put it together in, in one volume. So as I started writing that book and the more I got into it, the more I realized uh, that addiction is also deeply personal. It was really closely related to my own background and upbringing, and um, that uh, that was part of the reason I, I brought in my personal story too.
0: As far as the term itself, when and why did addiction come to be the word addiction?
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I, thanks for asking because I love the origin of the word because language is so powerful in shaping our understandings of psychology and of ourselves. The word addiction first entered the English language uh, about 500 years ago. It was at a time when the Protestant Reformation was really early in its process, and some theological writers were really curious about topics like free will and agency and choice. And for them, they became attracted to this word addiction because for them, it it pointed towards something about the sort of gray area between freedom and powerlessness. It was a really nuanced word, about uh in a way voluntarily giving up choice or consciously and actively devoting yourself to something to the point that you lost some element of agency or self-control so it's a little different than how we understand addiction today addiction back then was wasn't really a status it wasn't something that happened to you it was an action it was something you did and you engage with. And yeah, I think it is really fascinating in that way because it, it points toward a sort of more of a gray area between freedom and powerlessness.
0: I loved your exploration of how ancient cultures dealt with addiction, obviously long before that word came to be 500 years ago. And uh, the word addiction, uh, I'm sorry, the ancient Greeks had an interesting term that serves as a precursor to the word addiction. What was Akrasia?
1: Yeah, so uh, acrosio is sometimes uh, translated as weakness of the will. Another translation that I love is incontinence, which is pretty evocative. Hmm. But it it was a term that was used by Aristotle in his work to understand self-control. And it was a particular type of a loss of self-control that pointed toward uh, doing something even though you intended otherwise and you knew it wasn't good for you. So... A great example of, akras- of akra- see, I'm stumbling over it because I've heard philosophers say it both ways, akrasia or akrasia. But um, uh, a great contemporary example is uh, just the vignette I think a lot of people could identify with where I'm trying to lose some weight and I've got a slice of pie in the fridge. Both these things are currently true, by the way. Uh, and I, I, I say to myself, I, w- I do- don't want to eat that pie. And then I almost watch myself walking toward the fridge, opening the door, taking out the pie and eating it all the while telling myself I shouldn't be eating this pie or I'd rather not be eating this pie or eating this pie is not in alignment with my most deeply held values. Uh, and that, that's a very um, ordinary example. And I think it's the same process that goes on in severe addictions. People describe a similar process when they resolved to stop drinking and then they watch themselves walking out the front door and walking down to the corner store and then relapsing on alcohol or what have you. Uh, so I, I think for the ancients, looking at those concepts, even before we had the term addiction, looking at those concepts really helps us to understand uh, some of those nuances and mysteries of the human condition.
0: Why did addiction historian David Cortwright label a 300 year period from around 1500 to 1800, the psychoactive revolution?
1: Mm. So this period was a time of explosion in transoceanic trade and commerce and mercantilism and exploration, and also necessarily colonialism, slavery, oppression, other forms of domination. And during that time, Uh, cultures were thrown together, but also substances were thrown into different cultures. So many human societies use drugs, almost every single one. The ones that don't use drugs uh, will find other ways of altering their consciousness, like shamanic breathing or spinning around in circles until they get high. Uh, We just have a natural drive for intoxication and altered states. So many cultures have grown up with substances But when cultures come into contact with a new substance where there aren't social norms to keep that use in check, uh, also in the context sometimes of dislocation and alienation and other sorts of challenges, uh, then substance use can get out of control. And so starting from around that time, so I I start uh, one set of explorations with Columbus because Columbus brought back tobacco uh, from the so-called New World to Europe and then it was an explosion across Europe and Asia. And at first it was held up to be a magical plant and it was reserved for the aristocracy, but then when it became associated with the lower classes and when it became associated with sort of the wrong sorts of users, especially Native Americans, and called a savage drug or even a, a sort of pestilence uh, or a plague, uh, governments from Russia to Japan, Mongolia and then also in Europe, had these really powerful crackdowns, like cutting off noses or the death penalty for using tobacco, uh, which is notable because obviously they didn't have a sense of the health risks back then. They didn't have studies about cancer. They didn't have ideas about COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It was was an idea about a drug as a sort of contagion, uh, which comes from what you were asking about that psychoactive revolution where these revolutionary contacts. Uh, With other substances set off a wave of epidemics, epidemic after epidemic after epidemic of drugs that have really recurred from 500 years ago to the present.
0: Speaking of, why were women supposedly spontaneously combusting in mid-18th century London?
1: Love that example. So in in that time period in London, there was something called the gin craze. And the gin craze is, is a beautiful example of some of the forces involved in drug epidemics. Traditionally, what happens when a society has a drug epidemic is they want to assign a villain. So it could be a bad drug, or it could be a bad drug company, or it could be the wrong sorts of users, or it could be something sick with society, something broken or troubled or suffering about society. And the the real answer is that The causes of epidemics truly lie across multiple levels and we have to take a step backward and appreciate all of them if we're to have any hope of understanding them and responding to them effectively. And that holds just as as true in today's opioid overdose crisis. Uh, So in the gin craze, uh, there was a a combination of multiple effects. There were powerful distilleries that were working really hard to promote this new liquor gin. And then there, there was a lot of urban upheaval and poverty, and people rushing into London uh, in search of work. Uh, and there was also the substance. So gin is not new for people around that time period, but it was it, it was functionally new in the sense that it was a powerful liquor that was widely available in a way that uh, uh, alcohol wasn't available before. So uh, people were it, it just incensed by it, and there was a massive moral panic about gin. And one of the ways that that panic uh, sort of translated itself into popular culture is worries about women just spontaneously combusting to the point where it even made it into some Charles Dickens novels.
0: <laughs> that is insane. Benjamin Rush was incredibly accomplished, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Surgeon General of the Continental Army, a man labeled as the father of American psychiatry, one of the world's first influential figures to argue that addiction is a disease. How did he come to this conclusion, Carl? And do you believe that in some way, shape, or form, addiction is a disease?
1: Yeah, Benjamin Rush talked about disease. It's important to note that his disease is different than our disease. And the way he talked about addiction is different than the way we talked about addiction. Uh, Because one of the big lessons of the book is that addiction is not like some tumor or molecule that sits outside of the historical process. It really depends on the the attitudes and the cultures and the beliefs of the time. So I talk about Benjamin Rush for a lot of reasons. He's a fascinating guy, but one of the reasons is uh, he had an interesting counterpoint to some of the contemporary conversations about disease. Uh, he he labeled habitual drunkenness a type of disease, but also was really focused on the social and the political and the economic forces that drive the problem of habitual drunkenness. Back in his time, around the time of the American Revolutionary War and afterward, America was in the midst of a huge alcohol epidemic. And so much so that foreign observers would say, would visit from Europe and say, hey, these Americans have a real problem here. Uh, And Rush didn't use disease to say it's all in the brain. He didn't say that alcohol is some sort of invading toxin that takes you over and hijacks you. Uh, he, he recognized across multiple levels at the same time uh, that uh, he didn't even use the word addiction, but what we would today call addiction exists at the physical level. There are definite real physical effects, but also the personal human psychological level, the cultural level, the economic level, so forth and so on. And so I am really cautious about the word disease right now. I, I think that, I, I mean, I, I go on. It's a major theme in the book, and I return to it over and over again, precisely because I don't really know how I feel about disease, other than it's a big, messy concept with a lot of other ideas associated with it. Some people use it in a helpful way, and I think disease can be a sort of um, model for making sense of one's limitations, but then we also have many, many examples throughout history and in the present of um, an extreme view of disease that says the causes are best located in biology or that the medical profession is the ultimate authority about what to do about addiction and i think those those types of ideas are misleading so throughout the book i i try to call attention and just pause and look a little deeper at what we mean by disease
0: it's a quandary because on the one hand it does humanize what an individual is going through just tr- versus just treating them as you know somebody who continually makes poor decisions over and over again. But by the same token, you don't want the person going through addiction to believe that they have less control over uh, that addiction than they do by labeling it as a disease. Which, when you think of disease, you think of something that has perhaps built up over time, but is is going to continue slowly eroding uh, on that individual over time.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a double-edged sword for sure. That's what I hear you saying it's it's double-edged sword. Yeah, and um. There's so many examples of this. So Beth Macy, the writer of *Dopesick*, has chronicled examples of people using disease language to win over more compassionate interventions. In these are grassroots activists. Uh, David Chef, who wrote *Beautiful Boy*, talks about his son uh, and how the disease idea helped him to adopt a more compassionate attitude toward his son. And so those are, those are, I think, a very defensible kind of facet of this you know, complicated stone of disease that we have, uh, that addiction is something that's deserving of care and compassion. It's a real thing that deserves support. Um, but then on a personal level, both of my parents had troubles with alcoholism too. And for my mother, for example, the notion of disease turned her off and I think was a major barrier to her recovery because she said, I'm not, I'm not the sick one. Look at your father, he's worse than me. Mm. And that, um, and that really, uh, kept her from getting care and treatment for a long time as she acknowledged later in her life. So I think that we have to be very careful about the way we use disease. And if nothing else, it's a good opportunity to say, time out, what do we actually mean by disease? Uh, because sometimes the, the sort of motivating ideas or the hidden assumptions might be helpful, and they might be wholesome, and they might be compassionate, but other times they
0: might be misleading. So Aristotle and Plato thought of the word temperance as, a, as this idea of moderation, equilibrium, or harmony. When did it go from that to this concept of total abstinence, and why did it happen that way?
1: Yeah, the American temperance movement was such a fascinating episode in American history when uh, this movement against alcohol in the earlier part and then stretching through a long time of the 19th century, so starting maybe 1810s, 1820s, 1830s, uh, people became really concerned about that alcohol epidemic that I mentioned earlier. So American drinking was at a huge level much higher than it is now, even though today a lot of people would argue it's a very high level, it causes a huge burden of disease, a lot of medical problems from our current consumption of alcohol, but it was even worse back then for some of the reasons we already discussed. And there were these movements afoot to try to raise consciousness about the problems of alcohol and encourage temperance. But over time, that movement hardened and became more extreme in seeking the total abolition of alcohol. And you know, one of the big historical surprises actually was um, the biggest drop in American drinking did not come during Prohibition. Everyone knows about Prohibition 1920s, the, the, um, the actual constitutional amendment to ban alcohol. But um, a bigger drop was occasioned back in the 1820s just by changing hearts and minds. Just by concerted effort, primarily by religious evangelicals who uh, were out there, basically stumping, giving speeches, organizing in small groups at a grassroots level too, um, to to raise the raise awareness about the dangers of alcohol, it morphed into sort of a possession narrative. So as, as things got more extreme, it became a story about demon rum and a story about how uh, alcohol takes you over and controls you. It sort of put the agency in the substance itself. So I argue about um, how, how that can be a dangerous uh, a dangerous route to take because it loses sight of the human factors and the social factors and, and all the rest. So, uh, yeah, it's a funny quirk of American history that this word that meant moderation and balance came to mean uh, total abstinence.
0: And at the same time, America was also starting to go through its first opioid epidemic. A lot of people don't realize that why was America's first opioid epidemic something that was really firing up in the mid to late 1800s?
1: Yeah, we've had multiple opioid epidemics. And as you say, the first one really hit around the time of the Civil War. And just like those other epidemics we talked about, there are multiple causes. Uh, There was the, the stress and the trauma of the war itself. But there was also advances in medical technology that led to the purification and to the distribution of morphine. And uh, that purified form of opium became widely available, especially in the United States, where there was a very competitive and entrepreneurial and relatively deregulated market. Uh, and one of the key things about the American experience is that uh, there was something uniquely American about that opioid epidemic because some European countries, they were experiencing morphine too, and they did have problems with addiction. Uh, but they had some of those similar uh, forces acting on them. There were wars in, in Europe, and uh, there, there was medical entrepreneurialism there too. Uh, but there's something about the American character and the American relationship to substances that seemed to be a little more significant because there, there is some evidence that rates of morphine problems were higher in the United States around that time. And... Uh, a lot of that has to do with the American focus on individualism. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that America is a young country and we're still sort of like rootless and disconnected. And uh, I think also we we have a, a legacy of a particular type of relationship to the self and to self-control uh, that sometimes gets in our way.
0: In the late 1800s and early 1900s, cocaine was a popular drug in America on par with coffee and tea, according to your book. So how did its affiliation with black Americans change all of that? Mm. Yeah,
1: late 19th or early 20th century America was rocked by a series of moral panics about drugs. And one of the most important ones was about black use, black use of cocaine. Um, Other ones are uh, xenophobic reactions to Chinese immigrants in the West and their association with opium. And then also at more of a class level There were associations with um, immigration, primarily in the urban Northeast, and this new phenomenon of gangs and uh, heroin use, and also just the general universe of gray market use of morphine and other illicit or quasi illicit drugs. In the black experience with cocaine, uh, as you say, cocaine started off as a sort of middle-class drug. It was widely available. Uh, It was used to the country. Um, but in post-Civil War America, in the context of these broader fears about, about Blackness, about the dangerousness of Black bodies, about um, uh, fears about equality of, of Black use, uh, the stories about the drug became really effective ways of exercising control and justifying controls on, on Black people and heightening police uh, presence in general. Um, there's even uh, some notion, some evidence that uh, the the 38 special, the 38 caliber uh, pistol, was in part inspired by worries about so-called coconized uh, black people who had superhuman strength and couldn't be stopped by a lower cal- caliber bullet. So all of those those forces, the the white supremacy and racism and moral panics, sort of gathered steam in the late 19th and early 20th century uh to re- to inaugurate the first war on drugs you know people sometimes date the war on drugs to nixon in the 1970s it's true he did put a name on it and that was an important episode in american history but really we can find evidence of it much earlier in some of these forces we're talking about now
0: and you also saw this strategy carry over to the demonization of marijuana in the 19 teens and 20s where they were making claims once again demoni you know demonizing the drug by using a group of people that unfortunately has been exploited throughout their history, saying that marijuana caused dark-skinned men to want to rape white women.
1: Yeah, the fascinating thing about marijuana is that it's a um, a particular example of the political expediency of a compound because uh, the people in the Federal Bureau of Narcotics didn't even care that much about cannabis back then. But then when they saw that it was getting traction uh in the context of guess, this panics about drugs then they latched onto it as a way of advancing their agenda and getting more funding and it's only now that we're starting to unravel some of that criminalization as we know
0: you mentioned a little bit earlier that prohibition officially went into effect in america through the 1920s into the early 1930s obviously it was ultimately repealed but did it work over that 12 13 year period
1: no prohibition was not successful on a few markers uh some people like to say that prohibition did help in lowering rates of consumption but there's evidence that rates were dropping even before prohibition was enacted this ties into a broader theme of the book that drug drug epidemics like we've been ta- discussing are nothing new we've had drug drug epidemics for 500 years uh and in in the quest to control them and find the single simple explanation for an epidemic, societies tend to ping-pong between these different approaches, these different responses. Sometimes it's prohibitionist crackdowns, sometimes people are hoping to resolve it through some sort of miracle cure, uh, and those are always doomed to failure. Really what we need is thinking across the multiple levels that all go into the causes and conditions of drug problems if we're to have any hope of uh, like fully understanding them.
0: Alcoholics Anonymous was founded in the 1930s, most people know of Bill Wilson as the founder of AA, but who was Margaret Marty Mann and why is she an unsung hero with the rise of this popular alcohol addiction group?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. Cause I love Marty Mann. And we do, we need some
0: time to unpack her. So it's
1: good it's, that it's we're a really that. it's a really cool story. It's a cool story. And um, yeah, we kind of need to be on a podcast. It's not like a soundbiteable thing to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah, most people know about Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith as the two founders of AA, and rightfully so, Uh, but they weren't solely responsible for the the sort of distribution and the popularization and the spread of 12-step fellowship across the country and then across the world. And Marty Mann, who is largely forgotten, is, uh, you know, she's really uh, responsible for a huge, huge portion of that. She was this, Uh, fascinating woman, socialite, sort of bon vivant, lived in London, hung out with the Bloomsbury group, like Virginia Woolf and that whole crew, uh, but then had really severe problems with alcoholism to the point where she wound up homeless. And then she needed to get into treatment, but that was at a time, and this is a really important point, that the medical profession had uh, essentially abandoned the treatment of people with addiction. Even for someone of her social class and her resources and her social capital, um, it was really, really hard for Marty to access treatment. A lot of psychiatrists wouldn't treat it, um, and, and just help was few and far between. And it's kind of that way today, although obviously it's gotten somewhat better. So she eventually wound up in an asylum where, just by a stroke of luck, she got connected uh, to some of the early, early founders of AA before the big book was even published. It, like the the head psychiatrist got essentially a pre-publication book, a uh, pre-publication copy of the big book. And um, Marty Mann made her way into Brooklyn and she started hanging out with Bill Wilson, who became her sponsor. Uh, and um, the, the fellowship of AA was getting up and getting started and It was sort of developing itself. But Marty had this sort of drive to do more. She had this sense that um, alcoholism is this huge problem. Nobody knows what the effective responses are to it. She had this intuitive sense that a mutual help response like AA could really save lives and make the world a better place. And she was also a public relations genius. That was her day job. So she came up with this idea of making a huge nationwide campaign uh, to, to spread ideas about Uh, alcoholism as something that deserved care and compassion and medical treatment. And we, I could talk for hours about her, but I'll just say the last thing, which is uh, I think she has a really complicated legacy. This gets back to what we were talking about, about disease where um, Marty Mann saved countless lives. You know, she, she advocated for insurance coverage for addiction. She raised the profile of addiction treatment at a time that the medical profession was still very hands-off. And at the same time, she pushed on some notions of disease that we know today are not true. Like all people with substance problems are alike in the same way uh, that everyone needs the same kind of treatment. Um, it was just too definitive, too determinative. Uh, and there's, a way, there's ways that we're still living with that legacy today. So it gets back to what we were talking about with the double-edged sword
0: of, of the disease label. Amphetamine was discovered in 1929 and received a huge boost—a huge boost—from its use by warring factions, including Hitler, of course, during World War II. Have performance-enhancing drugs been a common part of war throughout human history?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's well documented that even going back to Mesopotamian soldiers, they were paid—they were paid in uh, beer rations—and uh, so people look for. I mean, you could look at the removal of suffering as a performance enhancement. So you know just quelling the um, the the pain and the uncertainty and the fear that's associated with combat. But in the case of amphetamines, uh, that was a really unique moment in drug history because that was when synthetics were bursting onto the scene. it was It was around the time that, uh, for the first time, people were able to mass produce synthetic drugs uh, without, the same level of reliance on natural products like growing opium and amphetamine was a crucial part of world war ii and uh again there was something uniquely american about it because the germans initiated it in the blitz and uh the british picked up amphetamines and there were all these examples of platoons hallucinating and seeing uh, like phantom soldiers and uh, essentially getting psychotic, kind of the way I got psychotic and amphetamines uh, in my own addiction and recovery. Uh, but then the United States kind of kept up the pace of amphetamines to a level higher than some of these other countries. And so, there, you know, there's a whole complicated story there about how there's, um, at the same time, there was a heroin epidemic in, say, the 1950s, which caused us to overlook stimulants uh, and their and their true dangers. And just yet another example of how we can, swing like a pendulum between these different understandings of good drugs and bad drugs.
0: How did pharma, including Smith, Klein, and French respond to consumer concerns about the potential addiction of amphetamines after World War II ended and the drugs started becoming much more commonplace in that commercial market?
1: Mm. One of the really surprising lessons of the history for me was the way that um, pharmaceutical companies and even earlier, these uh, entities I called addiction supply industries have resorted to the same playbook over and over again. So addiction supply industries are these market forces that uh, sell products like alcohol, like tobacco, like amphetamines, and the more recent example is like opioids in our current opioid overdose epidemic. And um, over and over again, they rely on certain tactics, one of which uh, comes to mind is uh, really individualizing the problem. So as long as there's some sort of explanation that says the problem is in the person, it's the person's bad choice, or even that like th- there's some subset of people that are broken or have some sort of inherent vulnerability, uh, it, it gives pharmaceutical companies a platform to then say, well, the problem's not in our product. It's really just that there's this, this little group of folks over here that... Um, maybe need to be careful about their use and we see that over and over again with tobacco companies for example that really love genetic explanations uh for uh nicotine addiction and it it was definitely used in the marketing of oxycontin and other forms of opioids and the problem is it obscures that market forces are really powerful in the way that societies take up and use drugs and um to, to reduce it to the lens of the individual really misses opportunities for uh, common sense regulation and minimizing harm.
0: It really is a vicious cycle, not only in terms of there being a denial of the problem that could potentially ad- exist, the addictive potential of the drug, but also the deceptive marketing that goes on and also just flat out bribery in terms mm-hmm. of uh, paying doctors and others to, to really push uh, that product on the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh,
1: there are so many examples of addiction science being misled by conscious forces like that and also uh, subtler biases and assumptions. Uh, science, again, uh, has so much to teach us about addiction. We have science based treatments and solutions. That are tragically underutilized today, but at the same time, we have to be very cautious about our scientific explanations because it's very easy for uh, cultural biases and assumptions to sneak into our scientific explorations. We saw that in the temperance movement, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, people spun these stories about uh, demon rum stimulating the nerves of the stomach, and that's the means by which it exerted force over the human will and... uh, That's really just a story about um, science kind of retrofitting uh, a a cultural explanation, science being used in the service of something that's not really a scientific assumption about the way the drugs work. Uh, And especially when there are powerful asymmetrical market forces at play, uh, addiction supply industries will always seek to, uh, to do that, to take advantage of those sorts of blind spots.
0: Nixon gets a lot of credit for initiating the war on drugs, and we'll certainly talk about his role in all of that shortly, but who was Harry Anslinger, and how did he, in his own way, start the war on drugs decades before?
1: Yeah, Harry Anslinger restarted the war on drugs, because, in a way, the real war on drugs goes back to Columbus, and it goes back to the early days of colonialism and oppression and slavery and all the rest, Uh, as long as we've had supposedly bad drugs that were assigned to the wrong sort of people, we've had uh, oppression on the basis of drugs, that uh, drugs have been used as an explanation or as a justification uh, for basically using them as a weapon against certain groups of people. Uh, And you're correct that that was a really important episode in American history that uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, as some of these moral panics that we've discussed were picking up steam and consensus was growing around certain types of prohibition, not just alcohol prohibition, but the first drug laws against opium, the first drug laws against uh, cocaine, uh, there, there was a, a powerful accelerating um, interest in prohibitionist responses to drug problems. And so Harry Anslinger was the head of this entity, which eventually became the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, who uh, really capitalized on a lot of those stories about good drugs and bad drugs. And um, some of the problems with those narratives, like the danger, the supposed dangers of cannabis um, or an exclusive focus on say like cocaine use in black populations actually rebounded to hurt everyone. Because by, by getting focused on the, these supposedly bad drugs, we missed the dangerous potentials of amphetamines. And then later, uh, American society missed some of the dangers in these sedatives called barbiturates, which a lot of people have forgotten today, um, but were hugely powerful and, and were the leading cause of poisoning in certain settings by the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, so I think there's, there's sort of like a, a selfish, motivation. There's a a case for uh, a self-interested skepticism about good drugs and bad drugs uh, because they they can really mislead us in terms of understanding what the true harms of drugs are.
0: It was mind-blowing to learn that merely being addicted to a drug was illegal in many states from the 1920s until the early 1960s. What was Robinson v. California, and how did it help change this ridiculous law nationally? Robinson versus California is one of these
1: landmark Supreme Court cases that is still sort of in play. I think it's possible in our lifetime that there could be other challenges to this type of law. Uh, But as you said, in certain jurisdictions, uh, addiction was a crime, not actions related to addiction, not being drunk in public, not possessing paraphernalia, just the status of being addicted. Was a crime. And uh one man, Lawrence Robinson, was arrested and then made his way to a, an enterprising and energetic lawyer, Samuel Carter McMorris, who successfully argued his case before the Supreme Court. And he argued that it was cruel and unusual punishment, and that we should not punish the status of addiction. And it was a very narrow ruling. Uh, but the court ultimately decided that this was correct, that you could not punish. Addiction as a crime. And the interesting thing about that is there have been subsequent challenges and there have been subsequent sort of nuances to that law. So, for example, you can punish somebody for, say, public drunkenness in jurisdictions. That was tested about ten years later. Uh, and at the time, people thought that um, that actually wouldn't prevail, that you know that public drunkenness would be deemed uh, or statutes, Punishing uh, public drunkenness would be deemed unconstitutional because it would be as if we were punishing addiction. Um, but to this day, these are sorts of test cases for that funny space between free will and compulsion. To this day, the medical profession and the legal profession <clears throat> doesn't quite know what to do about some of these volitional actions associated with addiction. It's hard to make a distinction between. Say, for example, an irresistible impulse and an impulse that someone simply didn't resist. And I, I think that um, the, the contemporary discussion gets narrowed in an unhelpful way sometimes when we talk about addiction as if it's some sort of binary between totally free choice on one end and then compulsion on the other end. Just like those um, uh, early Protestant writers were talking about 500 years ago, there's this gray area in between choice and compulsion where maybe there's an element of choice, but it's a disordered choice. There's a problem with choice. And um, I think it's a problem we're still struggling with today.
0: So after this ruling, and perhaps not as a result, but I think it's uh, very coincidental that it happens like this, the U.S. began handling addiction compassionately once again throughout the rest of the 1960s. But that changed when Nixon fired up his war on drugs in 1971. Now, did I read correctly that His war on drugs initially attempted to help addicts with treatment. And if that's correct, what ultimately changed there? Yeah, Nixon was called the first therapeutic president
1: by one scholar. It is shocking to me because, of course, he's remembered for the war on drugs. But the funny thing about Nixon's war is that, uh, at least initially, it invested much more in treatment than it did in punishment. It was a really fascinating time in American addiction history. Uh, part of the reason I personally got interested in addiction is because I worked in the criminal legal system, and I saw the way that sometimes addiction treatment, especially in our public services, are a really harsh places, and they can really just be incarceration under a different name. Uh, the surprising thing about, the, say, the 1960s is, is that it wasn't always that way, that it actually started off with a much more compassionist, uh, compassionate and holistic attention to wraparound services and really treating the individual in all their different facets. So it wasn't quite so polarized. People were able to get methadone and also get uh, opportunities for engaging in 12-step treatment and also to live in... Uh, therapeutic communities. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, because of other panics, like the the panic of uh, uh, returning soldiers from the Vietnam War, who uh, some people thought would infect America with uh, heroin addiction, uh, plus just the general progression of Nixon's presidency, that uh, eventually there was this shift toward prohibitionist crackdowns. But it's a really interesting episode in addiction history, because in that early period of Nixon's presidency, we see a model for some really compassionate ways of uh, treating addiction.
0: Yeah, and as a matter of fact, many of those Vietnam vets who were addicted to heroin when they were serving did not bring that habit back to the States. Why was that?
1: People have debated about this so long and in so many ways. It's almost like pick your side of the political spectrum <laughs> or, or pick your pick your hot take on addiction and somebody will find a way to bring in the vietnam vet story and so i'm very cautious about how we interpret these vietnam studies but it is the case that there was a lot of heroin use and there were a lot of heroin problems in vietnam and there was a worry about returning vets who would be somehow addicted to heroin And then persist in communities and put a huge burden on public services. Uh, And that was found not to be the case. There are a lot of explanations for that. Um, There are explanations in the definition of addiction. Uh, At that time, people, I think, were a little too focused on addiction as only physical. So if you just had tolerance and withdrawal, uh, then that supposedly qualified for addiction. We know that's not true. There are also internal psychological human factors going on, too. Um, But there was also something really important about the context as well. There's something really important about the fact that people were at war, and they were at war in an awful, stressful, terrible war that many people did not agree with. And then they got to come back to the United States where they got more care and they got more support, and they got more access to things that gave their lives structure and meaning and purpose. So um, it's... uh, There's so much that we could say about those Vietnam examples, but I think one key point is it points toward the diversity of addiction and the varieties of recovery that we see, that uh, addiction is not just one thing. It's not the same for everyone, and there actually
0: are a lot of different ways that uh, people can
1: recover and change.
0: Hmm. Senator Harold Hughes was a former alcoholic who spearheaded some positive national legislation on alcoholism in the 1970s. What made him sound an alarm in the middle of that decade about the addiction treatment field becoming an alcohol and drug industrial complex?
1: Right. It's notable because um, Senator Hughes really worked to bring addiction treatment to the mainstream. And like I mentioned before, the medical profession had really abandoned the treatment of addiction and had a lot of catching up to do. And at the same time, Hughes recognized that uh, there were very powerful forces involved in shaping addiction treatment and in a way becoming overconfident and arrogant and losing humility about the treatment of addiction. And one thing that he was pointing to in, uh, in that time period in the 70s is that people were getting sort of rigidly attached to a single model of addiction and addiction treatment. And I mentioned this a little bit in in the context of the Vietnam veterans, but uh, nowadays we know that there are many pathways to recovery, that not everyone with severe substance problems uh, are alike in the exact same way. There's no one single route to uh, recovery, but um, in part because the addiction treatment industry was still struggling against that sort of historical neglect, it it got locked into a sort of one-size-fits-all model. And I think there's a lot of signs for hope right now in 2022, people are more awake to the notion that, um, you know, while traditional 12 step recovery is fantastic, it's helped me out a lot. I've seen it occasion life-changing, uh, benefits in other people. Uh, it's not the only way. And we need to be better, uh, as a, as a medical profession, as a society
0: at, uh, giving people multiple options and meeting them where they are dopamine is an extremely important brain chemical with regards to addiction, but what has popular psychology and culture gotten wrong about dopamine's relationship with addiction?
1: Yeah, dopamine emerged in the context of the crack epidemic as a really powerful story about pleasure. And I think that the best brain researchers get this, and they know this, that dopamine is not just about pleasure. But there's a way that the public understanding of dopamine is kind of stuck in that 1980s and 1990s view. I know I, you've talked to Anna Lemke. I see in some of your uh, prior interviews, and um, you know she gets it. I think it's a good example of you know dopamine is not just about pleasure. It's also about the the chase. It's a pleasure of the the hunt rather than the pleasure of the feast. Um, but in the 1980s and 1990s, when people were terrified of crack, people thought that crack was this super drug, the most addictive drug to, known to man, and also a drug that was profoundly associated with racist ideas about Black drug use that would spread out and infect white America. Um, the dominant model of addiction became the sort of dopamine hijacking. And... I think that's really uh, damaging to, to reduce it all to the level of dopamine as some sort of pleasure chemical that has such a powerful effect on the brain that it, it saps someone's will and identity and self-control. Uh, it's much more complex than that. You know, Dopamine is powerful. Crack is more powerful than broccoli, is more powerful than sugar. So of course these drugs have effects, but if we reduce it all to the level of hijacking we miss out on the broader socio-cultural factors, which again rebound to hurt all of us. Because some of the underlying social and economic factors that set the stage for the crack epidemic, um, like offshoring jobs or uh, the the um, growing inequality in the United States, were actually setups for the opiate overdose epidemic. And um, we can't we can't ever uh, mistreat some portion of people with drug problems without the effects coming back to harm us
0: all. Very well said. Thankfully, I've never had to quit crack or cocaine, but having quit sugar in my life to try and better my health, that hurts. So I can only imagine how much it hurts to uh, to cut out some of the other stuff. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I, I think that brings up an important point that addiction is simultaneously a really profound and difficult problem and also something that exists in all of us. I've come to see across the years and across these different examples and also from looking deeply at my own experiences that uh, addiction is not some sort of neatly segregated problem that only affects some small percentage of the population. Of course, there are people who struggle with really life-threatening addictions, but at the same time, what those ancient thinkers like Aristotle and St. Augustine and other philosophers and theologians over time have identified is that addiction is pointing toward these universal problems with self-control, with how we relate to our suffering, uh, with how we make sense out of the world. So uh, we lose sight of that if we if we turn it into something uh, extreme and special and different and neatly divided from so-called normals.
0: Former First Lady Betty Ford sought help for her substance abuse issues after her family organized an intervention, which ultimately led to the opening of the Betty Ford Center. Do interventions typically help those? struggling with addiction? So now that I'm an addiction psychiatrist, I
1: work with people who sometimes get interventions and it's helpful. Uh, But we have to be very careful about interventions because they can be done in different ways. And um, uh, sometimes it can be harmful too. So the classic sort of stereotypical model of an intervention is really harsh, is really challenging. There's tough love. Uh, pull it together or you're out on the street, we'll cut you off. Um, Sometimes that's enabled by this notion of rock bottom, meaning that uh, we should actually help people reach their rock bottom so they can uh, rebound and see the light and enter into recovery. And some of those principles are really harmful uh, because we have good evidence today that... um, uh, we have to be very careful about withdrawing care and support. There are ways of helping and supporting people, whether it's a loved one, son, daughter, family, friend. Um, There are ways of supporting people like that uh, without so-called enabling them. Uh, That doesn't mean it it doesn't take incredible discernment and wisdom to think about, am I truly helping in a genuine way? Sometimes it's necessary to step back and say, I'm going to uh, allow this this problem to run its course and give someone the opportunity to f- face the natural consequences of their use. Uh, but that has to be done very carefully. And I think often it's useful to have um, help, to have help maybe from a professional, maybe just from peer support. Uh, but uh, all of this is to say that, you know, interventions are really part of the, the cultural landscape. They're sort of inescapable. I wouldn't say they're good or bad, but we, it's just a, a call to really look deeply into what we're doing and what we're hoping to achieve.
0: What is harm reduction and how might that help with drug addiction?
1: Yeah, harm reduction is one of these polarizing terms that like, like the word disease, like the word addiction, like the word epidemic, it's useful to hit the pause button and look deeply at what we mean by it. Uh, in one sense, you know, putting on a mask to prevent the spread of COVID is harm reduction, or putting on a seatbelt when you get in a car is harm reduction. So harm reduction could refer to very simple concrete strategies that reduce the risk of harm. In the context of drugs, that means just doing what it takes to reduce the harms of, say, injection drug using, that might be uh, distributing clean needles, so that reduces the risk of uh, transmissible diseases. It could mean, as New York City is piloting right now, overdose prevention sites, which are safe, clean, professionally monitored spaces where people can have access to sterile drug supplies. And um, if they get into trouble, if they overdose, if they happen to get a batch of drugs that's poisoned with fentanyl effectively, then they can be resuscitated. And also, you get an opportunity to engage someone and bring them into treatment. Um, But harm reduction has also been used as a sort of organizing philosophy. It's also a way of thinking about um, totally flipping the script on how we think about um, drug policy. So rather than making our yardstick controlling use or making people abstinent or making people stop, what if we made our yardstick how people are doing? How are they functioning in life? Uh, What do they need in this moment to get better? Uh, And the beautiful thing about harm reduction, and I see examples of this, I describe it in the 1980s, but also their uh, precursors say in the 1920s when people were getting regulated, careful doses of morphine to manage their heroin addictions, and even much earlier than that. um, Harm reduction doesn't need to be in opposition to abstinence. It doesn't need to be in opposition to things like AA or other 12-step programs. Uh, Harm reduction interventions, like I've just described, can also be a place where people can be engaged and be offered the opportunity to uh, pursue their other help, other sources of help, and um, to exercise self-determination in, uh, in other important ways.
0: Now, is the part of the interview, Carl, where I admit how jealous I am that I'm speaking with you from Austin, Texas, but you are in Portugal right now. I hope at yeah. some point during your stay, you're able to make it over to Nazare since it is surf season right now to see those big wave surfers do their thing but a lot of people uh, think of Portugal they think of the decriminalization of small amounts of drugs and this is something that happened I believe at the turn of the century that begs the question does decriminalization or even legalization help with addiction
1: that's why I'm here is to study this phenomenon like you said Portugal did a really good job of dealing with some serious drug problems not too long ago, and one element of their response was decriminalizing uh, small amounts of drugs for personal use. Uh, but the problem with that narrative is sometimes people miss out everything else that Portugal did, mm-hmm. uh, as if they just kind of flipped a the switch, they decriminalized drugs, and then things got better. And it, nothing could be further from the truth. My understanding so far, and I'm only starting to get my feet wet here, <clears throat> is that, that that decriminalization was also paired With really progressive and beautiful uh, investments in social services. Not just housing and not just money, but also uh, prioritizing employment and connection and community and giving people the opportunity for work as a way of making meaning and structure in their lives. And I think that's an important point about uh, drug policy across the ages that I've seen over and over again in looking at these drug epidemics that have plagued us for 500 years on, is that it's never just one thing. It's never just one little lever that we pull. Uh, it's, it's complicated, and frankly, it sucks that we have to be <laughs> this um, careful about it, but uh, it absolutely requires a multi-level approach, uh, or else we have no hope of uh, fully comprehending the problem of addiction.
0: It's so important that we as individuals stress the nuance of an issue, and it could be just about anything that gets discussed either by people face to face or on social media right now, versus thinking of things in in this binary manner, which has, I think, gotten us in trouble and unfortunately taken us to the place where we are right now where it's even hard to have these conversations because as soon as you espouse an opinion that's different from somebody else they're looking to place a label on you to try and discredit you and perhaps the idea of addiction is not as politicized as well you know whether we're talking about covid or uh or the big build Back better plan or something completely different altogether but the nuance is the key to us coming together to find solutions i
1: couldn't agree more i have a lot of hope for people coming together around the problem of addiction We just passed 100,000 opioid overdose deaths in in a single year. It's a terrible milestone. I wrote a a psychiatric paper just a couple years ago when I said something like, oh, it's 74,000. And that's an awful record. And in just a few short years, we're talking about another 25,000 deaths not to mention all of the other harms associated with addiction, not to mention alcohol, not to mention uh, tobacco, which is still a huge problem and causes a huge burden of disease. Uh, but the, the hopeful thing is that I think when people have a personal experience in themselves or in their family, and they, they gather together to share their stories and to seek action, as some people have done, say, for example, in the case of the uh, opioid uh, litigation, which is still ongoing right now, Um, People can really build bridges. I've heard from activists on the ground who say, you know, this person was on that end of the political spectrum, that person was on the other end of the political spectrum, but they could unite around this single important human factor that um, human life matters, and that this is a real problem, and we need to find ways of zeroing in on the, the concrete practices and understandings that can save lives today.
0: Are you optimistic about the current state of the U.S. addiction treatment system?
1: Yes and no. I think that uh, the paradigm is changing and more people are coming forward to share their stories of addiction recovery. And I think that's essential for unraveling stigma. And uh, there's more receptiveness to some of the harm reduction practices that we've discussed, but we still have so far to go. Addiction is still artificially walled off from the rest of treatment, even when I was in psychiatric residency, when I was in my in recovery myself, I saw people coming into our clinic who were less severe than I was at my worst use, and we couldn't admit them because they they supposedly had a substance problem, and they had to go over to a different clinic, uh, and uh, we still had that sort of artificial separation of care and You know, I think there are technocratic changes that we can do to make that better. There are ways that leadership is already acting to mainstream addiction care and sort of bring it into a a sort of more integrated model. But really, bottom line, we need changing consciousness. We need people to change the way they think about addiction. And that's not just medicine. It's also culture. It's also society. It's also... Um, mutual help recovery and uh, the sorts of uh, spiritual and personal development that people are often searching for and have associated with addiction recovery since time immemorial. So I am hopeful and we we still have a lot of work ahead
0: of us and we have to work hard. Completely agreed. All right. Last question, Carl. You said at the start of this conversation that your goal in writing this book was a little bit selfish. You wanted to try and better understand your own journey with addiction. So now that the book is complete and it's out there, were there any epiphanies that you encountered throughout the process of writing The Urge?
1: There were a bunch, but I I would have to say the one that's coming to mind right now is this notion of different varieties of recovery. Because I'm a striver, I'm an achiever. I want to get the A plus. I want to do things the right way. And I was mandated to a particular type of old school somewhat confrontational treatment, and I received a notion that I wasn't necessarily doing it the right way or I could be doing it in a better way and um eventually, I made my home to Buddhist recovery, which is not traditional twelve step based, but is not in opposition to it either. It's just a different variety. And I think there are a lot of people like me out there who have found ways of coping with even terrible and extreme substance use problems and are walking around with shame. Because even within the recovery community, we have a lot of internalized stigma. And I think there are ways that we are unnecessarily polarized. And if there's anything I'm hoping to do, it's to uh, seek ways of building bridges and overcoming those sorts of false distinctions that uh, divide us. Because really, there's no need for a lot of this sort of sniping and wars that we sometimes see uh, within addiction policy and addiction recovery.
0: Well, Carl, I'm just one guy in Texas, but you get an A-plus on this end for the earth. (laughs) I think it is a wonderful weaving of your own heartfelt personal story of going through the struggles of addiction while also combining that with a fascinating look at the history of addiction going back to ancient times of course covering modern days as well congratulations on the urge our history of addiction and thank you so much for the time today and talking about it
1: thanks so much trey it's been a real pleasure and i appreciate the kind words
0: thanks to gentleman jesus for the intro and outro music hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com and thanks to you for hanging out You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.